All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for first, or sorry, Second Samuel chapter six tonight. Are you guys all right, or is it just me? It's just me. Okay. <laughs> Seems like we're uh, long day, huh? Long day. All right. We'll keep we'll keep it short. I don't have a clock tonight, so uh, oh, Brian's working on it. There it is. All right, Second Samuel chapter 6. I want to try to cover some ground tonight. We have some amazing, amazing um, good stuff happening in Second Samuel tonight. So, but hopefully we're going to try to uh, cover some ground tonight and uh, get some of, this, some of these, these done. But let's look at chapter 6 beginning in verse number 1. And it says, again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. So just quick, quick, quick reminder. Um, in chapter 5 and, and 4, we see where basically where we are in the life of David is King Saul has just died. King, King David is now um, for the first time reigning over all of Israel, the t- ten tribes in the north, the two in the south. And, and then David is beginning to and continuing really a lifestyle that David lived of conquest. And last week where for the first time in Israel's history, they came to this, this place on planet Earth that David wanted to conquer. It was a, it was a, a city called, anybody? Jerusalem, so big milestone in Israel's history, the same place where Abraham brought Isaac, his son, up onto Mount Moriah to sacrifice him in Genesis 22. This, for whatever reason, this particular X on planet Earth that that God is very fond of and, and is the key to all biblical prophecy and understanding the same place that Jesus said he would come back to. And when, the, when, when um, Abraham brought Isaac, God specifically had him go to a specific location on the, te- on the top of Mount Moriah, where years later, David and his son Solomon would build a temple, and they would put the Holy of Holies and the Ark directly on that spot on planet Earth, and it, for whatever reason, is a place that, that God has designated as an important place on planet Earth. But when the nation of Israel, or when, when Moses died and Joshua led the nation of Israel into the promised land, it was all controlled by the Canaanites and, and pagans. And so David now, years later, as David takes over and is the, the first recognized king of Israel, and he begins to continue the conquests of Joshua, there was still a city called Jerusalem that they had not taken yet. And it was the Jebusites that were there. And David instructed that his men would go in through the water cisterns and take the city. And that's in 5. And then in 6, David, um, also in chapter 5, we saw where... Um, David is conquering with Philistines, and then um, God raised up a group of men, and they came, and they said, David, we want to build you a palace after they got into Jerusalem. And so David's palace and the remnants of David's palace are still there to this day. We talked about it last week. Um, And so David um, was built a palace, and David began to dwell in his palace in what is called, um, to this day, the city of David. And it sits on the, the corner, the south west corner of the old city of jerusalem to this day and the remnants are there of the city of david and it says in verse two and david arose and went with the people who were with him from baal judah to bring up from there the ark of god whose name is called by the name of the lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim so you know the the good thing for david right now is that david is um, in a good place spiritually as well. David is thinking about spiritual things. David is wanting to do things that are godly. You know, we look at, you know, our presidents, and, and it's, it's funny. I always mark the first act, because they make a big deal about the first act of each president. 
you know, with Bill Clinton, his first act as president was to put gays in the military. And um, with President Bush, his first act was to declare a national day of prayer. And, you know, and so when you see these things and David here has um, his his mind is, again, focused on godly things. And he's in his palace and he's saying, what can we do? And, and God puts it on his heart and David decides what he's going to do is he's going to get the Ark of the Covenant and he's going to bring it to Jerusalem. And so if you guys remember, we've studied the history of the Ark of the Covenant up to this point, And so I'll just give you a, a brief reminder. But the, the Israelites were in battle and, and in, a, in a battle, the Philistines, 70 years earlier than this, the Philistines stole or they, they won the Ark in the battle. You guys remember the story? And, and in the battle, they took the ark and they, be, and they brought it to a Philistine city. And something happened in that city where the ark was. Do you remember? Plagues began to break out on the Philistines. The first one was boils. And then the second city was rats. And the, the third city was hemorrhoids. True story. So the word, the word that, that's translated as tumors is literally hemorrhoids. So everywhere that the ark went among the Philistines, God followed it with boils, rats, and, and hemorrhoids. So finally the ark settles in, um, in one of the five major Philistine cities, and they put it in the house of Dagon. Dagon was the, the half fish, half man. It's like a male mermaid. To this day you'll see that, that kind of Baphomet style of, of pagan deity that's worshipped by, by the pagans. But it was a, it was a key god for the, the Philistines. And so um, the god, the god Dagon. I always think of that country song. Is it a country song? I'll be doggone. That song. Yeah, I don't know. Nobody. So, um, so they put it in the house of Dagon. Do you remember the story? And the next morning they come in, and the statue of Dagon was fallen on its face, and and so they had to help their god out. And rather than realize that the god of Israel and something else was going on, and maybe we should stop serving the half fish god, they just picked him back up and propped him up and held him up. And the next morning they came in, and the statue had fallen down again, except for this time his hands and his head rolled off the statue, and his hands were, were broken off, and his head was broken off. And so they decided um, there's something going on with this ark. The boils, the rats, the hemorrhoids, Dagon's statue being destroyed. And the Philistines decided they didn't want the ark of God anymore in Philistine country, and so they, um, they put it. But at the same time, you know, the way the world works is like they, they wanted to make sure, because there was value in it, they wanted to make sure that there was something to it. So do you remember they, they put it, um, they took a cow who was nursing and, and who was a new mom, and they separated the cow from her, her baby, and then they put the, the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart, and they let the cow go. And, and, a, and, a, and a mothering cow would never leave her, what is it called, a sow? Is that what it's called? Calf. <laughs> What's a sow? <laughs> she would never leave her calf. So there would be a sign that there's no way Mother Nature would allow this, this cow to leave her calf. And so they said, if it's a sign, then we'll know. And so they put it on the cart, and the calf took off mooing. And they didn't set it up, but it took off mooing in the direction directly of Israel. And the Philistines let the Ark of the Covenant go. It came to a place in Kirjath-Jerim, and they didn't know what to do with it. And so they, they set it off. Well, actually, no, they, they, they got it, and they wanted to look inside of it. And so... They took the mercy seat off of the Ark of, of the Covenant, and they, they looked inside, and 70,000 of the Hebrews died. 70,000 Jews died that day. 
And whenever you separate the mercy seat um, and you look at the law, because basically the, um, the, the Ark of the Covenant is a very fascinating picture of, of, of God and his mercy and his grace and the law. And inside the, the Ark of the Covenant, they kept three things. And it was a box. The Ark of the Covenant was a box three feet high and two feet wide, and it had rings along the side that you put poles in that the priest would carry. On top of it was a lid, and there was two angels on the top of the, the mercy seat. They call it, It's called the mercy seat, and the angels' wings would come over the top. And then the, um, they would sacrifice the sheep, and they would take the blood of the sheep, which represented the forgiveness of sins, and they would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat once a year was, was the practice. And so they, um, inside of the Ark of the Covenant, um, they kept three things. They kept the actual Ten Commandments that God wrote on. Moses broke the first set, and then, then he went back up and made another set. And so the Ten Commandments that God fingered were inside there, a jar of the manna that, they were, that God was providing in the wilderness, and the rod that budded, the rod that Aaron threw down in Egypt, was also kept in there. So those three things and each one is significant. It's all a picture of Christ. And so the, the ark is in Kirjathjearim. 70,000 die because they removed the mercy seat and they looked upon it. And you can never look upon the law because the law kills. Um, and, then, um, and then so they threw it kind of off in a field. And then after it was in a field, it goes to the house of um, Abinadab. And while it's in the house of Abinadab, yeah, that's a great picture of the Ark of the Covenant, inlaid in gold, solid gold all the way around it with the poles there with the priest. The, the top is there is the mercy seat. And again, inside the box, those three things were held. And then on top, it actually would be, um, after the years, it would be very bloody and, 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 and sticky and gross because they would, they would put blood over, they would take the blood of the lambs once a year in the sacrifice and cover um, the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But again, the Ark of the Covenant, God's design for the Ark of the Covenant is is very fascinating. It was given, the design was given to Moses and the children of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness to build it. And then also the dimensions for the temporary um, tabernacle where it was housed um, was given to Moses and the children would, um, it would travel with the tabernacle, the tent. The actual tent that Moses built when we went through um, Exodus um, they, you know, every time God told them to move and they were led by a pillar of fire at night, a cloud in the day, and, and they would disassemble this tent, this, this temple, this temporary tabernacle, we call it. And then they would reset it up in the new place they would go and they would set up camp. And inside the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Well, what, you know, they, they made a bad decision because this wasn't a thing of war and it wasn't meant for that, but they... They, because it was so powerful and it had such a nostalgia in the in the nation and the world and and, and it had it had history and it had prestige, they took it with them to battle to fight the Philistines. Saul did, and um, and the Philistines won the battle and 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 took the Ark of the Covenant. But um, where is you know it's a good study uh, as far as like where is the Ark of the Covenant today? Indiana Jones knows. He found it. It's kind of a big deal, right? They're going to make a movie about it one day. So we don't really know. You know, I've seen some Christian videos that are kind of hokey a little bit but about philosophies about what actually happened to the Ark of the Covenant. I believe the bottom line is, is that um, um, God intentionally has it so that we don't know. He's, he's, some, he's done something with it or put it somewhere. There is a, uh, a folklore that it, it's in Ethiopia and that there's a church in, and a place in Ethiopia that has it. And there is a, a connection to this, this time in history in Ethiopia because Solomon um, had an admirer who was the queen of Ethiopia, the queen of Sheba. 
and she comes all the way from Ethiopia to Israel to meet Solomon. And the tradition says that she went home pregnant with Solomon's son. And in Ethiopia, there's, there's a lot of tradition and folklore about this ancient queen of, of Ethiopia who had a half-Jewish son. And, and then they have a, you know, I've shared with you guys kind of the folklore before. I won't get into it tonight. But basically, the bottom line is, is that the, even in, in Ethiopia today, the, the, a while ago, I mean in the 70s, there was a ruler who was supposed to be a direct descendant of um, King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. That story about King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, that's a biblical story. It's recorded for us in the Bible. And, and her descendant was a guy by the name of Haley Selassie. And so I don't know if that rings a bell or not, but in like the, the Rastafari religion, the one that Bob Marley and his guys you know, were, were a part of, they believed that, Bob Marley himself believed that Haley Selassie was the Messiah and that he was a, a, a special figure in, in human history, and they looked up to him as a Messiah. Haley Selassie um, was this Ethiopian, um, um, I don't know if he's a president, king, something of Ethiopia, like in the 70s, but again, they, they believed he was a Messiah figure. What's interesting about that, the rest of that story is um, before Bob Marley, when he was diagnosed with cancer, he was in a hospital in the United States, and um, he had a relative, an aunt, um, that was that was born again Christian, and uh, history says that she led him to Jesus um, a couple months before he died, and on his deathbed, all of his friends and family gathered, and when he was getting ready to die, he said, "Jesus, come take me," and they're looking at each other like, "Does he mean Haley Selassie? What does he mean, Jesus, come take me?" But that he had given his life to Christ in in the last few months of his life, and um, so if that's true. We'll have some good reggae music in heaven. So I'm hoping it's true. Because then I can listen to Bob Marley and not feel like I'm sinning. <laughs> I feel good about it. He was a Christian. It was cool. <laughs> it's good stuff. All right. So um, so David decides he's going to go get the ark. So that's the history of the ark, where we are as far as the ark history goes. Um, again, David is going to get the ark. Eventually, at the end of the story, he brings it back. They put it in the temple. Um it's in the temple at the time of Jesus. And so sometime after the, the um, siege of Titus Vespasian and the temple being destroyed is where the ark um, disappears off the face of the earth. And again, to this day, nobody really knows where it's at. So another, another hypothesis is that the Jews have it and that it's in Israel and it's in Jerusalem and they have it hidden somewhere underneath the old city. But who knows? In verse three, it says, "So they set the ark." Oh, hold on, let's let's go to verse two. We gotta we gotta point something out. In verse one, we gotta point that out. David gathered all the choice men of Israel, thirty thousand, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is whose name is called by the name of the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubs. So, David's plan to bring back the ark of the covenant. What does he do? Does he, does he open the word of God? Does he go into the law of Moses? Does he, does he look at what God prescribed? Or, you know, it's not what he does. He gathers 30,000 choice men. And, and basically he's making this decision and governing by committee and, and, and by what's popular. And then it says in verse 3, so they set the ark of God on a new cart. David, what are you doing? The, 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 the Bible lays out the way that the ark of covenant is supposed to be moved. It's supposed to be carried on the backs of priests. 
It's supposed to be um, carried six steps and stop and sacrifice and worship. And there's an, there's an entire way that God's word lays out to do it. This is a classic case of doing the right thing the wrong way. Doing something the way the world would do it. One of the you know, applications that we can see in the, from this in the church today is, you know, so many times in church, and we have to be careful for this, for this stuff as a church, but we, we see what the world is doing and we think, oh, non-believers and people that are, you know, they, they'll, you know, it'll be non-offensive or they'll like it or we'll entertain them. And so we, we try to take things that the world is doing and then we copy them in the church and we make them Christian and we put a Christian twist on it. And, um, you know, we have these practices and these things that we're doing by committee that, you know, is trying to, to you know, we just do a bad job of what the world is doing. And the world is not interested in us doing a bad job of their traditions and things that are hip and cool and new. And um, we want to be careful that we, 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 we have the word of God. The word of God lays out the prescription for how we're to do church, how we're to do life, and that, that we, it's all we need. And we, and we do it according to the word of God. So David is not doing it according to the word of God. God laid out in his word how it should be done. David didn't consult the word of God. I'm wondering if there, there's only two, two different scenarios right here. Number one, David didn't know what God's prescribed way for moving the ark was. And, and I have a hard time believing that. David was a psalmist. David wrote the Psalms. He knew the word of God. He was in the word of God. In Psalms chapter 1, David said, Blessed is he who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, or in the word, and upon it he meditates day and night. And I don't think David wrote that if that wasn't what he was living. And so he, he lived in the word of God day and night. So David knew what the prescription was, but what do you think he said? What do you think he did in his heart? He compromised. And he said, oh, I know the word of God says that, but that's, that was old. That was for Moses. That, 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 that's, that's something that was written thousands of years ago and 600 years ago, 500 years ago, and it's not valid for today. We're going to be hip. We're going to be new. We're going to be cool. We're going to do it the way the world is doing it. And how was the world doing it? The Philistines put it on a new cart. And what was the deal with the new cart? Pretty simple, right? A board with some big wheels. So David said, we're going to put some big wheels on it and bling it up and make it look nice, you know, and, and, and that's what, what we're going to do. And so he puts it on this new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. So Uzzah, the word Uzzah, the name Uzzah means strong. He was a strong man or strong man. And Ahio means friendly. So again, I think there's in there is a little bit of, you know, God saying that, that the plan was to put it on a new cart and have strong and friendly lead it. You know, and again, we, we do things that way in church, in life. We do that things where, where, where it's in the flesh or it's something that we're trying to appease the world. And, um, you know, as long as we have a strong plan, you know, friendly people and forget the prescription of what the word of God says. You know, I, I was trying to be careful. I, I, I thought to myself tonight when coming into this that I'd just leave it alone. But here we are and I'm not going to leave it alone. But, you know, one of the things and, and it's happening all throughout our the United States today, but this, you know, it's like, it's like, um, the women in Congress and, um, the big celebration of, of how many women we now have in our Congress and our Senate. We have, um, the same thing uh, the, the Grammys was, you know, a big awards on Sunday night. And I was here in Bible study, by the way, but, um, but I saw the stuff on it and the, and the big deal was all of the female performers who were winning. And we have the hashtag, you know, me too, and this and that, and all of this, stuff going on with with women's equality and and i'm not it's all great whatever i'm not making any point about that 
But, but what we're doing and what we're seeing, and I've seen it in a Christian magazine, a relevant magazine, is a, is a, is a, a very popular Christian magazine. And, and, and it was basically saying that, and quoted Oprah and some quote from Oprah about being women strong. And, and, and the article, the summary of the article said that we need to have more women in our churches preaching and teaching and leading. And, and we're taking something again out of the world and an idea from the world. And, and, and many churches are doing it. We see women pastors and, and leaders. And, and you know, the, the problem is it's, it's not the prescription that God laid out. It has nothing to do with, you know, uh, you know who's, who's equal. God, you know, no place in the world have, have women's rights been more equal than where Christianity is, is prevailed. You go anywhere in the world where, where, where Christianity has not prevailed and you check the rights of women. They don't exist, you know, in Saudi Arabia. You know, do you realize they celebrated just last year in 2018? In Saudi Arabia, women got the right to do a, <laughs> I'm going to say like boat or something, you know, but to drive a car. It was illegal for a woman to drive a car in Saudi Arabia until 2018. But don't get too excited because that's only if your husband or your father signs and says it's okay and there's other rules, too, like not driving at night and these kind of things. So simple point just to say that, that where, where, the, where, the, where the spirit of God is and where Christianity is, a women's rights have been elevated into the proper place. You know, and, and again, God has not, you know, God says, behold, I make a male and female, I make them. And, and both are created in the image of God. But, you know, a man and a woman are both created in the image of God. And God has given man and women roles. And he doesn't, you know, God, basically what God did was he gave half of his strengths to a woman and half of his strengths to a man. And in marriage, he said, the two shall become one flesh. And in that, we'll complement each other. And that a, that a woman's strengths and a man's strengths together make us more godly. You know, the design of marriage, the, the ultimate design of marriage is not necessarily to make you happy. Your, your marriage should make you happy and it should bring happiness. But that's not God's ultimate design in your marriage. The, the design of your marriage is to make you godly. Is to make you more like Jesus. Is to make you die to yourself. But there's roles, and again, in, in, in all of our roles, we we you know it doesn't it doesn't make one better than the other. It's just the way God designed it. God says that 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 the man should be the head of the house as Christ is the head of the church, and the Bible is very clear that that Paul says, and in, and in the New Testament, that a woman is not permitted to be the senior pastor of a church, and it's just that clear, and and it's like. We, we, we see this move and we see, you know, all over, even in this valley where, where, where we're having women as senior pastors. You know, you know um, there's only one job biblically that you could, you know, you make a solid case that a woman can't do, and that's be the senior pastor. Women can teach. They can teach. They can do anything other than, than be the senior pastor in the church because the Bible pro- prohibits it. It forbids it. And again, it's, it's not a position of better or worse or equality. It's, it's a matter of position, and it's a matter of the way that God laid it out and doing it the way that God designed it. And ladies, if you have a problem with that, your problem is not with me, it's with God. But again, it's, it's right, and it's the way it's supposed to be, you know, and there's roles. And again, women can lead, and women can, you know, they can teach, and they can, but, but the Bible's so, so clear, it's so clear. It's like, you know, this article, I'm reading this article, and th- in this article, um, the, the writer in, in this Christian magazine I was telling you about this week says that nowhere in the New Testament does God put a gender on the spiritual gifts. And immediately I kind of got a red flag. And then I went back and I thought about it. I thought, well, okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that because that's true. Nowhere in the New Testament does God put a gender upon spiritual gifts, that, that, not, 
that certain spiritual gifts are for men and others are for women. That, that's not the case. All the spiritual gifts, you know, um, prophesy. They can, you know, they're, they're all the same. They're, they're the same whether you're man or woman. God said, I'm going to pour my spirit out upon all flesh. He didn't just say men or women. He said all flesh. But he does make, again, he makes some certain designations in the word of God about, about a rightful role. A man is called to be the head of his house spiritually. And, 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 you know, a man is called to be the head of his, head of his house. A man is called to, to rule his house well. A woman is called to submit to her husband. And a husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church. You guys think you're having problems with that? That's what, that's what God said, man. But again, it's not submission like WWF. You know, like, submit, woman, submit. You know, I get you. You know, that's not the point. You know, the point is that if, if, if the, 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 it really starts with the man. The Bible says that if, for a man to love his wife as Christ loved the church, but if you, men, if you love your wife as Christ loved the church, he'll have no problem submitting to you. They don't have the ego problems and the need to, 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 to feel like they're the boss like we do. It's, it's part of the temptation that, that, that Eve dealt with in the garden. But really her motivation to, to follow you and let you lead comes because you're, you're a good leader and because she knows you have her best interest at hand when you make decisions, when you lead, when you do those things. But again, all, all that to just say that, and, and that's just one area. And, and we see where the church all over, the, all over America is, is adopting things that are popular, that are cool, that are trendy, but they're not biblical. And, and it's just not biblical, the practices of, of having um, women as senior pastors in our churches. And so we've we got to be careful doing the things that the world is doing. And God's not going to bless them. And this is going to blow up in David's face. He's doing the right thing the wrong way. You know, and you guys know as far as, um, you know, our church is concerned, my, I, I really believe this. My wife is one of the best Bible teachers that, that I know. She really is. I mean, better than most of the, the, the men pastors that I follow and listen to. My wife absolutely has a gift to teach God's word. But she exercises that gift where? In women's ministry. And she teaches women. And not to say that she couldn't come and, you know, even share on a Wednesday night or, you know, or, or do some, some teaching and stuff like that. She just, again, the prohibition is for the women being senior pastors. All right. So then we see where David's doing this. And then in verse 4 it says, um, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Hiel went before the ark. And then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord and all kinds of instruments of fir, wood, on harp, strings, instruments, and tambourines, on, on sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand on the ark of God and took a hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. So the oxen stumbles. The cart with the big wheels begins to tumble, and then not to worry, strength, Uzzah, the man of power, is there, and he's going to help God out, and he reaches out, and he puts his hand on the ark to steady it, and then, uh-oh, and then in verse 7, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died by the ark of God, and so Uzzah touched the ark, and as a result, he fell over dead, okay? So why did God kill Uzzah for touching the ark? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But there's lots of things we can guess, we can conjecture, we can kind of put in there. But again, they're doing the right thing the wrong way. And again, with, with, with the Ark of the Covenant, it was such a symbol of God's um, grace and mercy. And, and, and it was a combination of grace and mercy because the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant sits over the law. And you can never remove mercy and then look at the law. The law can't save anybody. 
The day the law was given, 3,000 people died. That was the day that Moses went and got the law. And the day in history when the law was given, 3,000 people died. And 2,000 years later in Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the day that this church was born, 3,000 people got saved. The day that grace was born. And so the law kills and grace saves. And so Uzzah, with the wrong heart or the wrong attitude, and, and with, with the irreverence or whatever his issue of his heart was, that he reached out and he touched the ark and he touched the mercy seat as it was going down and he was going to help God out. That was forbidden. And God struck him and he died. And David came in verse 8, became very angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Well, maybe David should have been afraid of the Lord before this chapter started and and done it the way that God prescribed. Because, again, I don't believe that David didn't know. I believe that David just thought better of it. He just thought there's a better way to do it. That's old school. And we can improve upon what the word of God says. Philistines brought it on a new cart. It worked well for them. And this is another classic example, again, of of us doing something, David doing something, even with the right motive. He, he was doing, wanting to do godly things and spiritual things and bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, but or back to Jerusalem and the tabernacle, but he did it in the wrong way. And then we do something in the wrong way, and there's a natural um, cause. And, and what is David's response? It says that he was angry at God. Was it God's fault? It wasn't God's fault. You know, so many times God has given man free will. You know, and, and how many times, you know, I've talked to people so many times and they say, you know, I, 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 I can't serve a God who, who would allow these bad things to happen. I can't serve a God who, who, would, who would do that to somebody. I can't serve a God who would, who would send somebody to hell. And so many times the, the things that God gets blamed for, he had nothing to do with. You know, it, the irony is that, is that God has given you and I a free will. And, and, you know, we, we, we have the, the, the ability to choose. And then, and then when men choose wrong or men choose sin, then they're angry at God for, for not doing something. You know, and they say, well, why didn't God do something? And then, and then they're angry when God does do something, when, you know, God steps in with the, with the Canaanites and he, and he tells Saul to kill the Canaanites, man, woman, and child, because they were a cancer. And he, he's exacting his justice upon the Canaanite nation and upon society and really an act of mercy. And then we call him immoral and we're upset because he does do something. You know, and the idea of free will, if God's going to give us free will, it has to be without limitations. You know, where, where, where would you draw the line? Where is God supposed to step in to your free will? You know, if God's given you free will, he's given you a choice. And in order for him to honor that choice, in order for there to be love, God has to stay with, with the ability for all of us to make choices. You know, the thing is, God, God warns us and keeps in everything in his word to keep us from doing things that are going to cause us harm. And then, and then we do something against God's will. We do something that, you know, th- here's a classic example. People that don't love God, they don't know God, they don't serve God, they don't do it God's way. And then things go all twisted in their lives and they're mad at God. It's like, hold on a minute. You, you, didn't, you didn't want God. You didn't do it God's way. You, now, now that things aren't going the way that you, you thought they should, you can't be mad at God for that. God had nothing to do with that. God wanted nothing more than, than to bless you and to love you and to see you keep you from those things. And, and he gave you, again, sovereignty and free will. You know, some people say, you know, there was a, a child who was harmed or shot. 
you know, and why didn't, why didn't God stop that, that crime from happening? Now, first of all, that, that, that person who committed the crime, the person who pulled the trigger, it's not the will of God. And God, and God warned them against those things and, and kept them from it. But if God stops the, the trigger or the bullet, you know, where do we draw the line in the sovereignty of God or in the free will of man? What if, what if uh, you guys leave here tonight and you go over to Apollo Burger and you order a double cheeseburger and a shake? Well, that's probably not a good thing for you. Should God stop you from eating a double cheeseburger and a shake tonight? Like you try to get up to your mouth, you can't, yeah, it's like it won't work because God's free will is not allowing you to do something that's harmful to yourself. And I know that's a ridiculous example, but the reality is, you, you know, we, we can't complain about, the, about both sides of the argument. We can't complain that God doesn't do something and that God does do something. You know, if, if, if he's allowing free will, he's allowing free will, and then he gives men a choice. But there has to be, right? There has to be free will. There has to be a choice that you and I make in order for there to be love, in order for there to be reward. It's no reward and it's no relationship if God created every one of us without the capacity to choose. Meaning that you, you were born to love God and you were going to love God from the day you were born and you had no choice to choose otherwise and you just know and believe and love God. You'd be a robot. I love God. God loves me. You know, and we would have no choice to compute. compute. And then when you get to heaven and, and it comes time for God to reward you for a choice you made, how can he reward you? Because you didn't have a choice. You were created. You were going to love God no matter what. It's not love. The only way you have love, the only way you have a reward where God can one day say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the rest of the Lord and, and have a reward as you go through the, the rewards that God passes out in, 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 um, in that time is there has to be something to reward. You know, if you have someone, uh, you know, if, if I have my wife and I, I chain her to a bed in my basement and she can never leave, you know, and I go down every day when I get home and I walk down in the basement and I force her to say she loves me and she's chained and has no choice to leave, is, is that love? Obviously, there's no love, right? There's no decision. But if I set her free and I go and I come home and she's still there, well, then maybe she's chosen to stay and she's chosen to love me. So in the sovereignty, again, in the free will of God, he's given us all free will and choice. And unfortunately, you know, we live in a fallen world. You know, the fact that terrible things happen is, is part of our motivation. It's part of our encouragement to long for heaven, to long for justice, to long to see God, to, to do what we, we've been studying on Sunday mornings, to have the, the expectation of the imminent return of Jesus Christ and to long for those days and to desire for a better place and to long for our eternal home and to be thankful that, you know, that the lifespan is, is what it is and that if, you know, 70 years, you know, the average lifespan that, that, you know, 70 years compared to an eternity of, of, of heaven and, you know, with God is nothing. It's, it's, it's a small price that we pay to, to, to follow God. But as, as, we, as we hurt, as we long for justice, as we see those things, they're all motivators to us to be more heavenly minded, to be more godly minded and have hope and have courage and have, have, have energy that this is not our home. And these things are bothersome and they, they hurt. But the, the great thing is we're going to be in heaven one day. And we long for that. We long for God's justice and, and a day when, when those things are, are put to rest. And when we don't have those, the, the sin of, of the world. But in the meantime, God has given men a choice. 
and, and the fact that when men choose to sin and disobey God, then you don't get a, again, you don't get to blame God for, for the result. And so here David's angry, um, and the anger of the Lord was aroused. Um, verse 8, and David became angry of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And David was afraid, in verse 10, so David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. How do you think you would have felt if you were (laughs) Obed-Edom? Hey, the king comes and he's like, hey, I'm taking this to your house. No, you're not. I don't want no boils. I don't want no hemorrhoids. I don't want no rats. 70,000 people died. Uzzah died yesterday. He ain't bringing that thing anywhere near my house. And I'm sure he was afraid, and, and David being the king makes the command, and he has to obey it. And so reluctantly, the thing comes to his house, and the result is, and, and do you think he touched it? You think he opened it up and looked inside it? Oh, cool, hey, David's gone. Let's see what's in that thing. No. And he didn't open it up. He didn't look in it. I'm sure he reverenced it and respected it and left it alone. And then as a result, because because God was was with the Ark of the Covenant because it was a big deal to God. It was a symbol that, 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 that had power and value. Um, God began to bless the house of Obed-Edom as a result. And now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the Ark of God of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. So in Numbers chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, the Bible prescribes the way that they're supposed to move, move the ark. Now listen, this, this is the way that God was going to bless um, David and his, and his people. And maybe, they, maybe because they knew this is why they put it on a cart, because it seems like way over the top and a lot of work. And sometimes, you know, doing things the right way and doing things God's way is a lot of work and maybe a little over the top. But that's where God's blessing is, doing the right thing the right way. And so now after three months, David, um, he has time to calm down. He begins to, 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 he reads the scripture, he studies it, and he says, this time we're going to go do it, but we're going to do it the right way. And what was the right way? On, on, the, on the backs of the priests. The priests would carry the ark. The ark, is, again, is, is ultimately a picture of Jesus, our priest who would give his life, our high priest who would give his life for us. And they go from the house of Obed-Edom back to Jerusalem, and every six steps, I bet you there was a lot of six steps between where they were headed and where they were going. A lot of work, a lot of work, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of dedication in order to do it the right way. But that's where God's blessing was. And so David took, they did, they took six steps. And every six paces, he sacrificed an oxen and a fatted sheep. Dang, that's some good barbecuing. God said you could eat that stuff. They would, they would get to eat those barbecues, and they'd have certain parts of it where they'd sacrifice and burn offerings. But it was a barbecue. It was a party. And they were worshiping, and they were, and they were doing it the right way. But the, the, the labor of, um, of the thing, and look at verse 14. And then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So we have this spontaneous worship of David. Now, David was a worshiper. It was one of David's great qualities. Now, David had so many great qualities. But one of David's great qualities was he was not fake. He was not um, manufacturing anything. It was who he was in his heart. 
David probably had the greatest gift to articulate worship than anybody in human history. As you read through the Psalms and the things that just naturally came out of David's heart as a moment of worship. You know, the best type of worship you'll, you'll ever experience is oftentimes a real spontaneous burst of emotion and thankfulness. And something happens and just something hits you and spontaneously you're just like, thank you, God. Thank you, God. And you begin to worship the Lord spontaneously. It can happen, you know, anywhere, anytime. And, and David here has this, this spontaneous burst of, of, of emotion and worship. And he's doing it exactly as the Lord prescribed it. And it says, I, I miss one key word here. Um, but basically it says that David went and he brought up the ark of God. Um, oh, here it is in verse 12, the end of verse 12. To the city of David with gladness. The King James says with joy. He brought it up with joy and gladness. And he came with this heart of worship. And David danced before the Lord in a linen ephod. What's a linen ephod? In Spanish, they call that chonies. That, that's basically his undergarments. I don't know if it's necessarily what we consider underwear, like his boxers and his white t-shirt or his wife beater, but it, it was basically the undergarments that you would wear under your clothes. And, and the point being that David was a king, right? And, and so how would a king dress? He would dress with a certain style, with a certain pomp. He would have a crown. He would have, you know, gold. He would have chains. He would have something, you know, as a king, he would have been, um, well-dressed and, and well, well um, blinged out. And David takes all of the bling off and he takes all the kingly, kingly stuff off and he, and he dresses down into his, his underwear, his, his clothes you wear under your clothes, his linen ephod. And, and so he's wearing his linen ephod and he's dancing before the Lord. Don't ever, but let every, don't ever let anybody tell you dancing before the Lord is not Christian. It's Christian. That's why I dance when I worship. But as long as you're dancing for the Lord, that's the key in his heart. Even, even in Psalm 150, when God prescribes worship, dance is one of the things that's listed. You know, you go to some churches and they take that seriously, man. And it's a little, a little wild for me, but they're dancing up and down the aisles and running flags. But I don't know. I can't argue with them. David danced before the Lord. That's what the Bible says. I don't know. But you do it with reverence, get her done. But David is dancing and he has joy and they're worshiping and they're sacrificing and they're, they're taking the ark six steps. And David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Again, loud trumpet is a blown instrument um, where it comes with breath. And, and so whenever you see this idea of the trumpet and the breath, the word um, breath in the Bible is associated with what? The Holy Spirit. The word um, in, the, in the Hebrew is ruach. Ruach means breath, a breathe. That's the same word for Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, it's pneuma is the Greek word. It means the same thing to breath or to breathe. And, it, and it's always a representation of the Holy Spirit because your breath in your lungs, the life that's in you, when God breathes into your life, when God breathed into um, the dry bones in Ezekiel 36, it was he filled them with his spirit. When a baby's born and, and they take that that first breath and the spirit of God is, is, is breathed into their lives. And so this breath and the spirit of God, and it says in verse 16, now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. You guys ever have that happen? He had a great day at church. He went to a men's retreat, a women's retreat. You're all excited. 
come home and you're just pumped, you're just full of spirit. And the person on the other end says, can you take out the trash? <laughs> Something happens and you're just like, oh, man, oh, that's had a good day, man, full of spirit. So David's pumped. He's dancing before the Lord. He's whirling and twirling. He's full of joy. He's forgot what happened, you know, three months ago. He's not upset anymore. He's doing it God's way and God is blessing it. And he's just full of joy. And then Michael was despising him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in a place in the midst of the tabernacle. And David had erected it for it erected for it then david offered burnt offerings and a peace of offering before the lord and when david had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings and blessed the people in the name of the lord of hosts then he distributed among all the people among the whole multitude of israel both the women and the men to everyone a loaf of bread and a piece of meat and a cake of raisin and all the people departed everyone to his house so david even in celebration um, from the king gave everybody dessert and meat and, and drink and bread and, and everybody got to bring home a, a, a gift box and a thank you and, and then David heads home. The day's over. And it says in verse 20, then David returned to bless his household. What was David's heart coming into his house? He was going to bless his family now. He was full of the joy of the Lord. He wanted, he wanted his family to also catch it. You know, um, that, that, that happens. It happens a lot here. You know, like you Something you know, happens exciting with the men and with the men that came up from California and with these projects we've been doing and, you know, just some of the joy and some of the amazing things that were happening right here. And, you know, I'm like, you know, I, I wanted so much for my boys to be a part of it and they had to miss it. They were gone. They were at school. And it was like, man, you, right underneath their noses, something really godly and really amazing was happening and they missed it and wanted to go home and bless the boys and share with them what God was doing. And so David is in that heart. He was just excited. He just wants to come home and he wants to share with his family what God is doing. Um, and so he wants to bless his house. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids and of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Stinking joy robber. Stinking bag of bones. Yeah. You ever, you ever, you ever know somebody and you, you're afraid to ask them how you're doing? Because you're afraid they might tell you. <laughs> so you're just like, <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> you know, uh, Pastor Drell used to have a saying, and he'd say, he'd say, uh, give everyone the sunshine and give Jesus the rest. You know, and, and you know, and, and not that it's not okay to share how you're feeling and, and how you're doing, but, you know, if, if, if every time somebody asks you how you're doing, and it's always something negative. It's always something Deber, Debbie Downer. People are going to avoid you. And again, you go, well, you know, it's not people don't care. It's not people don't love you. And it's not that there's not times where you can, you can share with people and they can encourage you and love you. But if that's your personality and that's every time, you know, like the idea of, you know, one of my pet peeves is I'm tired. I'm tired. And you ask somebody, no matter what time, day, night, morning, late, early, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, no matter when you see them. How you doing? I'm tired. You're always tired. Stop telling me you're tired. Like, just tell me I'm good, even if you're tired. Or, you know, or, you know uh, how are you? Oh, I don't know. Bad day. You know, it's like, hold on a minute. Give everybody the sunshine and give Jesus the rest. Tell Jesus you're tired. Tell Jesus you had a bad day. And just smile at folks and tell them, hey, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. 
And again, I'm not saying we have to be fake. I'm not saying you can't never have a bad day. But if, if 90% of the time you, you're, you, you just are joy to be around, then people can deal with, with you telling them how you feel every once in a while when you're having a bad day. I'm just saying it can't be 100% of the time. It can't be 100% of the time that people are around you because people will start to avoid you. So give them the joy, and, and then they can handle it you know, when, you, when you are having a day. So she's, she's this, this joy robber. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house and to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord of Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And then we're going to get, yeah, we're going to get to verse 22 here in a minute. But those are the worst kind of fights, right? Well, your family, you know, and, you know, I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, if I really want to get under Lydia's goat, Lydia's go, you know, I just, she's doing something. I'll call her her mom's name or something, you know, and that don't go over so well. Or she says, your family, you know, and so David's, David doesn't mess around, you know. She punches him in the chin when he walks in, and he gives it right back to her, and he says, well, God chose me over your family. And so Michael is this, you guys remember Michael, story Michael? The one that, that, that if he killed Goliath, whoever killed Goliath got to marry Saul's daughter. And she was troubled from the beginning. It was almost like Saul wanted to, like, knew this girl had some, like, issues, you know. And so when David killed Goliath, he was promised to David as um, his wife, and not only after he killed Goliath, he had to go kill and get a hundred foreskins from the Philistines as a dowry for her. And David went and got two hundred, and gave them to Saul, and and then Saul was to give her to David as his wife. Well, they never consummated the marriage, and it never finally went through. And then Saul decided he was going to kill David. David went out on the run. So when David came back, he told Joab, "Do you remember?" Um, you, you can come and make peace between the 12 tribes, but not until you bring my wife, Michael, back. And that was this daughter of Saul that, that had been promised to David. So he brings Michael back, and now David has her as his wife finally. Her husband is, was, a, was the guy who walked behind her crying and whining, you know, until till, um, Joab told him to turn around and go back, you know, and you whine her. And, and so, but she's always been trouble, and she was always a thorn in David's side. And, and, and she just didn't have the heart of the Lord. And, and, and her, her issue was that David wasn't acting kingly, that he took off his crown and his rings and he didn't act like her father would have, all pompous and holier than thou and better than everybody else, that David was wearing his linen ephod, he was dancing with joy before the Lord. And, and, and basically she was saying, you know, you don't know how to behave yourself like a king, proper king would. And David's telling her, look, I don't care about that. That's not important. My, my, my reputation is not important. What's important is that I'm going to be undignified in my worship of the Lord, that I'm going to worship the Lord with joy, and, and, and I'm going to love the people, and I'm going to be among the people. And she was all, all upset because she was, she was better than everybody else, and, you know, she had, she had that attitude that she was the, you know, the princess and, and the queen, and, and that she wasn't going to associate with low people. And so she's upset and tells David that, you know, he shamelessly uncovers himself, and so then David says in verse 22, and I will be even more undignified than this. I think that's one of uh, David's greatest lines. You know, David was a man after God's own heart. David was a, was, was a worshiper. He was one of the greatest worshipers that the, that the Bible example and the Bible has ever, has ever shown us or we've ever seen in the heart of David who loved and worshiped God tremendously. And David says, you haven't seen nothing yet. 
You think that was undignified? In the area of worshiping the Lord and being unashamed. You know, Paul said, um, I am unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of salvation to those that believe. And this is a, a, a key in your walk and in my walk is that we live our lives unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, you serve the God of heaven. And I don't care if the world mocks us and because they don't get it, you know who you serve. You know that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You know that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And if that king lived on the earth today and had flesh on, you would have no problem being proud. That's my king and that's who I serve. Look how powerful and awesome he is. But because it's God, we, we're, we're, we're afraid or ashamed sometimes to, to be identified as Christ followers and as Christians and as children of the king. And David is telling Michael, I'll nev- that'll never be me. I'll never be embarrassed, never be ashamed of, of being a son of the king. And I'll be even more undignified than this. And I will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. So you may not have got it today, Michael. You may have missed the significance of what happened, but the people in the streets who I danced before, they got it. And they'll appreciate me. And and I've been honored before their sights. And therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And so, um, verse 23, she was basically shunned and cursed. And she she was embarrassed of of David and, and, and his worship of the Lord. And so David never went into her again the rest of her life. She was married to David, so it wasn't like she could go on and have a normal life with somebody else because her husband didn't want nothing to do with her. She was stuck, barren, alone, and doesn't really say whether David just, you know, or that God shut her womb or whatever, but that she had no children and she lived barren and David didn't go into her anymore the rest of um, her life and she died. So, all right, 840, let's see what time it is. 21. Uh, let's call it a night. One chapter. We were going to jam tonight, huh? If I if I start seven with six minutes to go, I'm not gonna. We're gonna we're gonna get to somewhere not good. Let's let's call it a night, huh? And uh, we'll pick up in seven next week. All right, let's stand.